Welcome to the Broadcast Dialogue podcast, the show all about the media industry in Canada. It's headquartered in Toronto and Los Angeles, but the QU Media, a curator, packager and distributor of millennial and Gen Z-focused digital-first content from influencers and creators, is finding huge success outside North America. On this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, we talk to Kurt Marvis, CEO and co-founder of the QU, on the company's journey to growing its distribution reach to 500 million viewers alone in India, plans for growth in the U.S., and his predictions for what's to come after a decade of disruption in the broadcast and video content space. Both myself and the other founders of QU Media, we're all guys that actually kind of originally created our careers in the uh, massive growth that happened around the proliferation of cable and satellite television. So when cable and satellite came in and channels like MTV and, and Disney Channel and others were launching in the early 80s, that's when we all, all of us that are founders of this company, got engaged in that, either as literally founders of those channels. One of our, our founders, Les Garland, was one of the key first executives at MTV and VH1. I was actually one of the largest producers of music videos and concerts, et cetera, back in the 80s and, and uh, 90s. And so we all have backgrounds in kind of that traditional broadcast business. The other, uh, or traditional media, I guess I would say. The other thing that happened for all of us is in the late 90s, early 2000s, virtually all of us who founded QU Media transitioned into kind of the digital world. And uh, I founded a company called Cinema Now in 1999, which was one of the first companies uh, with the novel notion of distributing full-length movies and TV shows over this new platform called the Internet. Um, it's funny, just, we, we actually launched the service on Pearl Harbor Day, which maybe that was uh, foreboding, but on uh, December 7th, 1999, so just you know, literally less than a week ago, was 20 years ago that we started to stream and, and download movies over the internet. So since that time, for the last 20 years, I've been very much involved in the digital space, the streaming space, the internet space, uh, the content space, and sort of my last job before this is I spent about five years at Lionsgate as their president of digital media. And in that role, I actually was doing a lot of licensing of uh, Lionsgate content to the early streaming entities like uh, cinema now, uh, including Netflix and Amazon when they were first starting to launch services in the late 2000s to stream movies to their customers. So I've been around that a lot. I also started at Lionsgate creating uh, some original programming for the digital space. So I did a project, an animated series called Trailer Trash, which was either the first or one of the first original programs ever created for Hulu. Uh, when they were first getting off the ground. I also uh, co-produced a show while at Lionsgate with a company called Machinima um, for a series called Bite Me, which was the beginning of sort of scripted, higher quality content uh, being created in short form video. You know, I guess you could call it the very, very seminal thing of what Quibi 
would be, you know, looking to do in a much bigger way or that even Snap is doing today and that sort of thing. So at any rate, I've been all around this as of my other co-founders and executives in the company. And when we started QU Media, what struck us as odd and part of what we drove us to create the company was that in the traditional media business, content is distributed in many, many different places and many, many different forms. Uh, a music video may have dominated its viewership on MTV, but that was not the only place that that video was shown. It was shown on other channels and other ways, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a movie, obviously, or a television show just, just doesn't show in a movie theater or on the network that it's on, it plays in syndication, it gets repackaged for home video, uh, plays on pay-per-view, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that concept is fundamental to the monetization of content. Without, if content only was monetized in one place, at one time, in one form, it would never ever be successful in terms of being able to recoup the investment into that. And so his short form video content became the sort of content of choice of the millennial and Gen Z uh, audiences, which was obviously apparent, you know, in a big way, even just going back four or five years ago. It also struck us as both odd and a, and a huge opportunity to be able to repackage that content and redistribute that content through different platforms. And what I mean by that is most YouTube creators uh, their content only exists on YouTube. They don't take it and sort of redistribute it on other platforms. If they're creating it for YouTube, it sits on their YouTube channel and that's it. And we said, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would, of course, you can go watch it on YouTube and that's great, but why not repackage that and distribute that in other ways, in other places? It would sort of be like having a product, having Coca-Cola and only selling it at Walmart. Well, that's a great opportunity to have it at Walmart. and You'll get lots of sales there, but you probably want to put it in other places as well. And that was really the thrust of what drove the creation of this business, was that we believed that in addition to the fact that there was just, you know, a bazillion hours of short-form content being published onto YouTube as a platform every minute, every hour, every day, et cetera, that there had to be a curation business around finding the best of that content, repackaging that content in a way that it could be redistributed across other platforms. And then as time went on and you saw the popularity of that content and the audience that it was generating, then you could start to create original programming for your business. It would be no different than an HBO or a Netflix in their early years. They didn't have any exclusive content. They were showing movies you know, HBO was just all movies all the time, commercial free. Netflix was obviously distributing the same movies that were available at your local blockbuster store or whatever. It was only late into their sort of gestation periods of their businesses that they started to create original content. And now in their current iterations, I'd argue that that's what they rely on. So we saw exactly that same path for QU Media that we could ultimately move into a place where we would be able to take the data that we were collecting and create original content with our content suppliers. But initially what we would do would be to leverage their library of content and redistribute it. And so that's basically what the fundamental idea is behind the, the company. The other thing that was fundamental to the company was that 
all of these short form content creators, the YouTubers, the people with content on Vimeo, you know, now increasingly on Instagram, Snap, et cetera, et cetera, all of these people are connected into the social framework uh, of their of communicating to their audiences. They, they all have a direct line of communication through their social channels with their fans. And so we also saw that as a huge opportunity to leverage that social footprint of our content creators to drive and create awareness for that content being available in different places. So if we had a show from you know creator XYZ, then on their Instagram and their Snapchat and their you know social uh, communications that they put out, they could say, "Hey, check out this uh, show. Check out my show. It's launching on Q India or Q Polska or Q whatever, and go out and watch that show." In that case, and so we saw sort of what we call a virtuous cycle in place, where the content providers would be providing this content that was being able to be monetized and to add to their monetization goals off platforms other than the platform of origin. And at the same time, they were going to use their own channels to help promote the fact that there was another place to watch that content. So that's kind of how the whole company came about. And that's what we do to this day. So can you talk a little bit about the business model, Kurt? You have headquarters in both Toronto and Los Angeles, but you're really a global network. How did that all evolve to the point now where, where you're reaching about 500 million people worldwide? Well, what happened was when we started the company, we really focused on the uh, linear broadcast business, which may seem somewhat counterintuitive, but we looked at the grids of major broadcast platforms all over the world. It didn't matter if it was in Canada and we were looking at the grid of channels for Shaw or for Rogers or Bell or whoever. All of them were faced and continue to be faced with the problem of cord nevers and cord cutters and not having a attractive plat or not becoming an attractive platform for the millennial and Gen Z audience base. And so we walked in and said, okay, why don't you put a channel on that has the content that they want to watch, which is all the stuff that's coming off these social distribution uh, platforms like YouTube. And so we were quite successful in doing that uh, in terms of getting platform coverage in places all over the world. Ironically, we haven't done that yet. We're just starting to explore it in Canada because as you're well aware, Canada has a lot of uh, Canadian content regulations and, and percentages of content that have to emanate from Canada to do that. But we started to distribute that channel around the world. And while we had success getting a platform uh, space for the channel, and while we, to this day, have the content distributed in, I don't know, about a dozen countries around the world, in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, et cetera, we also at the same time realized that an English language channel, because it was primarily in English and, and, and the difficulty of marketing in each of these small environments created a lot of challenges that we really just couldn't overcome. And so what we decided to do was to focus on a couple of, we sort of went, I, I, I frequently say we went 10 miles wide and two inches deep. And we realized that wasn't a winning strategy. And that what we were going to have to do was go two inches wide and 10 miles deep. And through a set of circumstances, we ended up really doing that in a huge way over the last couple of years in India. And as you may or may not be aware, 
you know, India is the fastest growing large economy in the world. Uh, India has over half of its population, over 600 million people in India are under the age of 25. The explosion of OTT platforms and mobile video platforms in India rivals anywhere in the world, including China. And the other interesting thing about India is that India, the broadcast industry, is still very, very much a growth industry in India and a very vital part of the uh, media ecosystem there. And so what we did is we went into a deep dive into India, and, and as we speak, India remains our most important target market because of the incredible uh, opportunity that exists there for growth. And what we did is we said, instead of creating kind of an international channel, let's create Q India and let's go and get the most successful and top uh, content, digital content creators and social superstars of India to be our partners on our content. And let's create a channel that can be equally distributed across traditional broadcast of cable and satellite across all of these emergings and fast-growing OTT platforms and all of these mobile platforms that are focused on video distribution through mobile devices in India. And so that's what we do to this day. And actually, the truth is we, in terms of a total customer reach relative to our distribution partners, we reach oh, probably over 500 million people as we speak in India alone. Uh, and that number will continue to grow significantly. Now, sometimes people say to me, well, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? I could put my, I could put my video on YouTube and say that I reach, you know, whatever it is, all 7 billion people in the, in the world. And while that's true, I'm talking about platforms that the average person just can't put their content on. You know, you can't, you can't just put your content onto Rogers. You have to actually negotiate a deal and it's limited shelf space and it's difficult. So all of the platforms that we're on in India that reach that 500 million plus audience, these are all OTT platforms, broadcast platforms and mobile platforms that you have to do distribution agreements with and rev share deals with, et cetera, et cetera. So we reach now a vast audience in India. Our goal was really first to create a product that featured a content from the top, top digital creators there, which we've done and continue to do. Our next goal was to get broad, broad distribution across all the major platforms there, which we've done. And now we're moving into monetization mode. Now that we've got the audience, we've got ratings uh, that are starting to come in and we'll start uh, really monetizing in 2020 and, and beyond. We've done exactly that same thing in Poland. And while Poland might seem like, how did you pick Poland? That was also both somewhat uh, through just luck and where we were, and it was also through the opportunity that we saw that exists there. Poland is actually a, a very, very robust uh, media marketplace given the you know 40 plus million size of the country. It's not, not unlike Canada, actually, in terms of a disproportionately large media opportunity there given the population. And uh, they have a very robust multi-platform video distribution infrastructure across traditional cable and satellite, across OTT platforms, and across uh, mobile platforms. And so it really sort of became the European analog for what we were doing in India. So we focused a tremendous amount of our efforts on those two territories to really drive our business model 
and proof of profitability and revenues first, and then start to do our expansion. We kind of did it. We, we made the mistake a little bit of going backwards initially by getting mass distribution without the ability to support it. Sort of like we, we, if we had Starbucks, we created the global Starbucks uh, infrastructure before we had our coffee shops in Seattle working the way we wanted them to. So we, we, we turned back to do that. We're super excited about what's happening in both those territories going into 2020. And we're also anxious and looking to be able to replicate that in some other territories going forward with the first one on the list being the United States. And I can't really talk about yet what we plan on doing here, but we do expect to have some really exciting things happening around our uh, business in, um, in 2020 in the U.S. So how are you recruiting and compensating talent? Well, talent is uh, everything that we do now is on a rev share basis. And our, the, the, there are two reasons for that. One is, is that we were not in a position to get into paying minimum guarantees or other things against the content, frankly, for no other reason that it was still an unproven model and we just couldn't sustain that. And the second thing was, is that we license all of the content non-exclusively. We actually encourage the people to continue to talk about their YouTube channel and their, you know, their other places where people can watch content that they're creating. Because for the content creators, what we sort of encourage them to be realizing is that we're just another revenue stream for them. And we are also a brand uh, uh, amplifier for them. If you're in the music business, you just don't put your, your music on Spotify. You want it everywhere. And it's the same concept with this. And so we also tell them, frankly, that for the first probably year, sometimes even a bit more that your content's on our service, your revenue will be somewhere between very low to non-existent. Why is that? Because we have a lot of expenses that we're still incurring to set this up, to market it, to get it out there, et cetera. But the idea is, is not only to create a revenue source for them from their library or their catalog of content, but also to create the opportunity for them if the data is showing, if they have a cooking platform on YouTube and we put them up onto the Q India and we get all the data and all the information and see that that cooking show is doing extremely well, trust me, we're gonna go back to those creators and say, let's create five or six exclusive shows just for Q India. So you recently announced that QU would be featured on the MX player in India, which has evolved as the second largest streaming platform, even though it only launched in February of this past year, I think. Can you can you talk a little bit about that global OTT landscape, what it looks like and what the potential is there? Yeah, I think when you get into, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with content in the so-called emerging markets. You know, there's a much more uh, limiting ability in these markets to be able to pay for content and pay for, you know, a, a bucket of different subscription services. And MX Player, interestingly enough, the way they got their original penetration is that it was a video player that was optimized for 3G non-smartphone style or powerful smartphone handsets. And so the reason it became so popular is because so many people in these emerging markets, you know, they don't have the brand, their brand new iPhone or their brand new Android phone, more so in, in these territories because Android still dominates in a huge way. They don't have the smartphone that has the power that we're used to in North America. 
And so they created a player that allowed video to play there. So they had a huge install base of players into all of these different people's mobile devices. And that's what they leveraged to then pour content through it and build a real content offering. With that said, now they're competing in India with Hotstar, et cetera. We're, we're seeing a lot of this happening in India across all of the OTT platforms, whether it's MX Player or Sony Live or Z5. Uh, Hotstar is still the granddaddy. We're not on Hotstar yet, but we hope that that happens in 2020. And the, 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 the reality is, is that when you get into these mass population markets, the same is true in Indonesia, it's true in the Philippines, it's true in Vietnam, it's true in Thailand. When you get into these mass population markets, the opportunity to offer an AVOD offering that's free to the, to the end user, but, on a, but, but being able to be consumed is really, really compelling. And what's happened is because mobile video is exploding in these territories, um, we you know, have leveraged our ability to get onto the platforms at an early stage and create sort of some brand presence. With all of that said, we're still big believers that television is, it's still the gold standard. And one of the interesting ways that we get top, top digital creators in these markets to want to participate with us is because we can put them on television and they have no other way to get onto television. And so just that alone becomes a, a real huge driver and, and a, a, an impetus for them to want to engage with Q India or Q Polska because we get them onto TV and they can't do that alone. I know as a startup, there have been challenges in determining how to maximize revenues. Do you see a path forward? And obviously you're about to get competition in this area because, you know, this idea has now evolved as, as a little bit more appealing, I think, to a broader base yeah i think you know it's kind of interesting when we started the business and went the route of a linear channel uh albeit with all of that content being available on a video on demand basis on nearly all the platforms we're on meaning you can just watch a show if you want to watch a show but 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 that concept was mocked by a lot of people as being you know a, a channel what are you talking about a linear channel why would anybody ever do that what's been ironic and interesting to watch uh, when we started the company, I would, have, I would have probably said that I thought I was worried about us being a little late. I realized now we were a little early. And that, the, that whole business driven by the Plutos and the Tubies and the Samsung TVs and the explosive growth in the last year of connected TVs and people just putting, putting that onto their broadband pipes. And this is happening in India as well through a massive rollout of fiber there. That The sort of channel business has become not only valid, but almost hot again. We think we've got, we've created a technology, a workflow, a process, a, an understanding of how to get this done that gives us a lot of advantages in, you know, I don't know if I'll call it a first mover advantage, but I'll call it an advanced ability to be able to do a lot of this stuff in a, in a cost effective and, and, and sort of understanding how it needs to happen now that we've been at it for a while. And like any startup, we went through, you know, immense number of twists and turns, false starts, stra strategy adjustments, and this, that, and the other thing. But we really think that given where we feel like we're positioned in India, in Poland, and, and also, again, as I said, where we think we'll be positioned here in the U.S. market as 2020 rolls along, uh, we think we're in a really good position to create both some, some, some real revenue growth, some profitability down the road, and also 
frankly create some brand uh, value that that uh, by virtue of particularly what's going to happen in the India market. And part of that growth is focusing on undertaking influencer marketing for other companies. We have run a and continue to run a very successful influencer marketing business for third parties. So meaning uh, uh, promoting, you know, a movie or a retail location or something else because, because over the years we've built an extraordinarily large list and set of uh, relationships with, with influencers. With that said, and while that business will continue to, to, to move forward, our real goal has always been to move that into an integrated marketing basis with our channels themselves. So you can assume that in India, um, we've already done some integrated marketing campaigns where the advertisers, what they, were, what they were putting up as an advertisement was both appearing on our television network, on our OTT and mobile channels, and also being promoted through the social reach of the influencers that we were working with. So we believe we have a real unique integrated marketing campaign going forward. And as ad blockers in the way of the pre-roll and 30-second spot, et cetera, become a bit threatened, we think going forward, we've got a huge, huge opportunity to build a new uh, sort of brand advertising capability and, and integrated marketing and, and branded content opportunity around our channels that will be unique for advertisers, particularly those that are trying to reach the younger millennial and older Gen Z uh, customer base. I know you're a busy guy, Kurt, and you've, you've got limited time, but is there anything else you want to touch on? Uh, I, I think, you know, the when I started out at the beginning of this talking about the cable and satellite business, you know, I think we're in a just a, an extraordinary time period over the next decade plus. I think the, the, the from 2000 to 2020 was the time of the disruption and then dismantling in many ways of all the traditional models around the cable and satellite broadcast model. As we enter 2020 with the launches of the Disney Pluses and all the other things that are happening around SVOD, with what's taking place in AVOD, with what's taking place with mobile video consumption and growth, with 5G and all the rest of it, I think in the next decade, I think by 2030, because all of this stuff always takes longer than anybody thinks it's going to, I think in a decade we're going to see a dramatic and, and you know, kind of astounding change in, in the models, the way content's consumed, what's happening around it, et cetera, et cetera, that we'll look back and sort of chuckle at, at, at the way things used to be done. And that's what's exciting for us as a company to be in this space, to be doing it every day, to be in the middle of all of that. That's what gets me to wake up early in the morning and go to bed late at night because it's just an extraordinarily exciting and dynamic place to, to be working in. So it's a, it's a cool time we've got ahead. Thanks so much for joining us, Kurt. Okay, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm 
Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.